When I was kind of growing up in church, and uh, really, I didn't grow up in a Christian home. I broke into a church here in town when I was uh, 12 to play basketball, and they caught me and led me to the Lord, so that was pretty cool. Uh, and so they started to disciple me, and I started to get uh, information on these things called camps or like retreats. Like I didn't know what that was. And even as a young kid, like even the men would let me go on like their men things, their men retreats. And you guys remember Promise Keepers? Does that ring a bell? Jacob, old guy does, yeah. Um, anyone else like, who's not older? Okay, yeah, you're older. All right, so some, some of you guys. Here's what typically always happened to the Promise Keeper. Like, whoever in the world of sports or who, who had another platform of fame, whoever had just recently quote, got saved that year, was like the keynote speaker. And so this was good and bad because it was good, and some of you may can identify with this, like if you've ever been to a camp, and they're like, hey, bring all your friends, we got so-and-so, and it's like, oh, yeah, I remember when he played for the Falcons, that was awesome. Yeah, and he's going to be expositing Romans. Like, oh, okay, I didn't know, like, does he do that? No, but he played for the Falcons, like, all right, let's see how this is going to go. And so they bring in this guy who got saved or this gal who got saved, and they had this great platform of fame somewhere out in the world for some reason, be it sports, be it education, be it something else, uh, you know, business world. And, but they got saved, and so obviously they need to be our keynote speaker and teach us the Bible, which usually that was kind of a train wreck, right? Because here you have basically like a baby Christian, and you're saying, go feed the flock, and just because you've been placed in the limelight in the quote-unquote secular world, now, hey, that's awesome. Why don't we leverage that spotlight and bring it to the church? And it typically didn't go over too well because the teaching was not all the time as accurate as you would like the teaching to be. But, like, sometimes it was awesome. And as I thought about it, I thought, you know, here are the times that made it awesome. The times it was awesome was when one of these persons would say, you know what, here's how my life was jacked up, and here's how I was, I've just been rescued by the Lord. So basically, when they were sharing their testimony, like, it was great. And, you know, got really encouraged and refreshed, and like, hey, man, I, you know, that's not my life, but I've seen, I'm broken too, and so I see the points of connection. Daniel chapter 4 is the testimony of a pagan who had a jacked up life, and God miraculously humbled and brought to himself. It's King Nebuchadnezzar. Just show of hands, who's been kind of tracking along, going through Daniel these past few weeks? 82%, awesome. So you've seen Nebuchadnezzar before if you've been here the last few weeks, and if you haven't, perhaps you've read the Old Testament before, and you know King Nebuchadnezzar had like, had about three God moments in his life. Um, and you know, it, that's kind of a side note. You ever read the Bible and you're like, man, like these guys have these encounters all the time. And like, I remember when I came to the Lord and yeah, maybe there was, that was that time when I was a freshman in the dorm. And then, but like, that, those are like the only two like times I could say where, man, the presence of the Lord was palpable. I'm not talking about like seeing visions or dreams, but like, whoa, like that was a real intense meeting time with the Lord. How come my experiences is different from the folks in scripture? And really, you think about it, it's not. I mean, what we have in the Scripture is kind of like the highlights of people's lives. And so to have one or two serious God moment encounters, 
Like, that's kind of the norm. And so, kind of the, the warp and wolf of the life we live walking with faith in Jesus is kind of just the normal, hey, I woke up this morning, I tried to tune my heart to fear his name through the scriptures, and there was no holy music, there were no angelic visitations, it was just kind of, I read my Bible, and all right, I closed it, I went to class, and nothing really magnificent happened during class, just kind of a normal day, I got home, uh, I was late to the college Bible study, so I had the last uh, grilled cheese sandwich, I'm Joseph, there you go, and that was it, it was just kind of a normal day, that's just kind of, and that's just, that's just life, isn't it? That's really where God does most of his transformative works in life, and this is the normal life. Well, this is third's like Nebuchadnezzar God moment in his life, and probably his last. You remember the first one? First one was what? Bueller. Bueller. Y'all seen Ferris Bueller? Okay, thanks. The older you get, the more you're like, you're not so sure about your movie references. What, Hannah? Yeah, he had the dream, right? Not Martin Luther King, but he had a dream. And it wasn't about his kids playing with other kids. It was, about, it was about this big statue, right? And so he was this head of gold. And basically Daniel comes in, hey, don't kill all the wise men. I know you're mad. I'm going to tell you the dream. But it's not really me. It's from God. And Daniel lays out, hey, God's showing you what he's going to do in the future. Second God moment, what did Nebuchadnezzar have? Second God moment. And just if you want the cheat sheet, take a, take a turn to the left in your Bible. Nebi, and let's see, Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego, right? And you guys know who Robert Smith is, professor at Beeson Divinity School. He's an African-American pastor, and so he can say this. I'm not really saying it, but I'm channeling him as I say this. He said, you remember the story of Shadrach, Meshach, and a bad Negro. So, anyways, that's him. That wasn't me. So, uh, that was his second God moment. He's looking down like, I just tried to execute three guides, and there's four in there walking. And I think y'all talked about this last week. And so he tells them, come out, and then God humbles him and makes him realize, no, there's no God but the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Well, here we have chapter 4. You've got to remember, Daniel's not chronological. So this probably is two, maybe three decades after that second God moment. And Nebuchadnezzar is probably an old man. And what we have in Daniel chapter 4, it's the only chapter in the Bible where a pagan is, like, talking. He's controlling the dialogue in the chapter. Like, he's writing it down. And we don't know, maybe Daniel was, like, writing this and said, hey, King, can you, you know, kind of give me your account of what happened, and I'll put it in my little book here, of course, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Um, we don't know if it went down that way, but here's what I want to do tonight, okay? I want us just to kind of read this chapter and go through. This is Nebuchadnezzar. He has a second dream and a second interpretation, like a second God moment, a third God moment of his life. I want us to walk through the chapter and kind of just make some comments as we go. But then I want us, and this is what's on your sheet, I want us to think about this in these terms. So suppose tomorrow somehow God engineers your conversation and you're talking with someone and for some reason it comes up what you did last night. Here's what I want us to look at. How would you communicate the message of this, this chapter to an unbeliever, someone who's unfamiliar with the scriptures, someone who even, as Hannah's saying, trying to start this conversation um, venue or event, 
How would you even begin to try to put handles on, all right, this is how I communicate this truth in a palatable way so that they're not automatically turned off. So when I'm like thinking about sharing the gospel, I don't know what pops in your mind when you like hear someone say that, like share the gospel, but that's my wife. Hey, Katie, my wife. Can y'all represent, hey, get a shout out to my wife, the better half. It's just great. We have four children. Like, are they okay? Okay, thanks. I just want to make sure it's cared for. Um, so when you think about someone sharing the gospel or when someone challenges you to share the gospel, I don't know what comes to your mind, but for me, as I was kind of being first discipled as a believer, uh, it was real popular to have different canned approaches to sharing the gospel. So for instance, has everyone, anyone ever heard of evangelism explosion? <whistles> cricket, cricket, like the old people. Uh, Okay. Has anyone ever heard of any evangelism sharing method? Does anyone ever heard the term evangelism? What? The cube. All right. So the evangel cube. Like, here's this cube. And like, hey, we're in Haiti. And they can't speak your language. But here's this cube. And it shows you different pictures. So the first picture, it's like, uh, I don't know. Like, we're separated from God. There's these two hands. You get to the end, like Jesus on the cross. And then you fold it again. And it's like, do you want to receive the Lord? So all these different ways, all these ones we just listed, all those many ones, Evangelism Explosion and Evangel Cube. But really, although those are great tools, really, when you think about sharing the gospel, and primarily when we're thinking about one-to-one, like what does an individual need to know? Like what are basic truths they need to know for salvation? I like to think of it in terms of hitting a gospel home run. So in my mind, and it's not necessarily, oh, my first base, and now, okay, now I'm going to second base. Oh, I know you're talking about something else, but I'm going to be awkward, and no, no, we've got to keep it to third base because we're not on second base right now. I like to think about, no matter what sequence the bases come, but what are the four primary truths I want to kind of communicate to someone just so they know the basic message of, of the gospel. And those are listed there, and it's not rocket science by any means, but God, man, Christ response. If we can somehow communicate the basic truth about who God is, the basic truth about who we are, the basic truth about who Jesus is, and then the basic truth of what Scripture calls us to do in light of all this, I think, I think we're getting at a good communication of the gospel. And again, this doesn't have to be a can. This is not a can thing. This is not even sometimes um, something you get to in, in a conversation. The first time you engage someone... Or even, hey, man, I'm talking to someone, and today, man, we were all on second base, and that was all, that's all we kind of covered. It was going to be awkward if we did anything else, but hey, next time, maybe we'll come back to first base, recap second base. So here's what I want to do. I want us to walk through the chapter and then just kind of go through what I'm going to do is maybe talk about a couple truths for each of those that we see if all we had to go on was just this chapter primarily. Now, we could use other scriptures, but if this is our lead, like, hey, yeah, last night I had some chili at this place. We talked about this. This part of the Bible, Daniel 4, King Nebuchadnezzar. I don't know if you ever talk about that. So, anyways, is that clear? Then, at the end, I know Kyle says you don't normally have time for discussion. Um, I want to see if you guys, I have one more question that's not on there, and I want to see if you guys can add some truths to that. Is that cool? So, this is Nebuchadnezzar's testimony. He's at Promise Keepers. The MC, hey, here's old King Nebuchadnezzar. I don't know if y'all know this, he got saved. He's going to tell you his testimony. King Nebuchadnezzar, this is verse 1. To all peoples, now he's kind of summarizing, and then he's going to go back and unpack why he's summarizing what he's saying. 
to all peoples, nations, and languages that dwell in all the earth. And if you remember, he was basically the ruler of the known world at that time. And here's what he says. He's writing to all his subjects. Peace be multiplied to you. It has seemed good to me to show the signs and wonders that the Most High God has done for me. In verse 3, here's a little hymn. How great are his signs, how mighty his wonders. His kingdom is an everlasting kingdom. His dominion endures from generation to generation. That's a great truth. Why are you saying that, Nebuchadnezzar? How have you reached that? I'll tell you how I've reached it, he says. Verse 4. I, Nebuchadnezzar, was at ease in my house and prospering in my place. At ease and prospering. Or palace, sorry. I saw a dream that made me afraid. Now, if you're just reading along as a casual reader, you might miss it, but that's a drastic contrast. Here is a guy, again, he's probably towards the end of his life. He has built his kingdom. The hanging gardens of Babylon were known in the ancient world as one of the seven uh, natural or seven wonders of the ancient world. I mean, folks came from the known world just to see these gardens that he built for his wife. And it was a beautiful, magnificent um, structure thing. Um, beautiful edifice. We got it. Anyway, that's another story. Uh, and so here he is. He's at ease and he's prospering. And then what a jarring reaction. He has this dream and makes him afraid. Like, how can you be at ease and prosperous and then immediately go to being afraid? And he'll tell us. As I lay in my bed, this is uh, continuing verse 5, the fancies and the visions of my head alarmed me. So I made a decree that all the wise men of Babylon should be brought before me, that they might make known to me the interpretation of the dream. Now, if you remember in chapter 2, he has the dream. What's different? In chapter 2, he's like, hey, tell me what I dreamed and what it means or you're dead. This time he's like, hey, that's cool. Like, I know Daniel's around. Just, just tell me interpretation. I know Daniel will keep you guys in check if you try to lie to me. Tell me the interpretation. Verse 7 is the same as what happened in chapter 2. The magicians, the enchanters, the Chaldeans, and the astrologers came in. I told them the dream, but they could not make known to me its interpretation. At last, Daniel came in before me. He who was named Belteshazzar, after the name of my God, and in whom is the spirit of the holy gods. And I told him the dream, saying, O Belteshazzar, chief of the mag magicians, because I know that the spirit of the holy gods is in you, and that no mystery is too difficult for you, tell me the visions of my dream that I saw and their interpretation. The visions of my head as I lay in bed were these. I saw, and behold... A tree in the midst of the earth, and its height was great. The tree grew and became strong, and its top reached to heaven, and it was visible to the end of the whole earth. Its leaves were beautiful, and its fruit abundant, and in it was food for all. The beasts of the field found shade under it, and the birds of the heavens lived in its branches, and all flesh was fed from it. Now, obviously, as Daniel's going to tell us, this is a picture, Dan Nebuchadnezzar is kind of dreaming about this tree, and the tree represents himself. And in his own mind, he is this huge, nourishing canopy for the whole earth. And it is in him and through him that all peoples, all creation is being fed. He is so glorious, he is so marvelous, at least in his own eyes. Verse 13, I saw in the visions of my head as I lay in bed, and behold, a watcher, which is probably just a type of angel, 
a holy one, came down from heaven. He proclaimed aloud and said thus, cut it down. Chop down the tree and lop off its branches, strip off its leaves and scatter its fruit. Let the beast flee from under it and the birds from its branches. But leave the stump of its roots in the earth, bound with a band of iron and bronze amid the tender grass of the field. Let him be wet with the dew of heaven. Let his portion be with the beast in the grass of the earth. Let his mind be changed from a man's and let a beast's mind be given to him. And let seven periods of time pass over him. The sentence is by the decree of the watchers, the decision by the word of the holy ones, to the end. This is the reason why this vision is being given to Nebuchadnezzar. To the end that the living may know that the Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will and sets over it the lowliest of men. It's a real important verse as we have two presidential candidates debating tonight as we speak. Verse 18. This dream I, King Nebuchadnezzar, saw, and you, O Belteshazzar, tell me the interpretation, because all the wise men of my kingdom are not able to make known to me the interpretation, but you are able, for the spirit of the holy gods is in you. Now, Daniel is given the interpretation pretty quickly, but he hesitates, right? Look at verse 19. Then Daniel, whose name was Belteshazzar, was dismayed for a while, and his thoughts alarmed him. Now, I'm sure we're just given the cliff notes here. But I could kind of picture Daniel saying, um, okay, King, uh, uh, do you like to go camping? Do you know what an enigma is? Not a Harry Potter fan. Um, you ever heard of werewolves? Is that something you're into, King? Do you like nursery rhymes? You ever heard Humpty Dumpty about the fall? Is that something that resonates with you? I, I, I can picture him kind of hedging, and he's hedging, he's hesitating. Really, and this is something I want us to chew on later. I think because he loves this man. Notice what he says, and not just loves this man, but loves what this man's rule means. So he's hedging. The king says, Belteshazzar, let not the dream or the interpretation alarm you. And then Belteshazzar answers and says, Oh, my Lord, may the dream be for those who hate you and its interpretation for your enemies. Because here's what's going to happen. You're going to fall like Humpty Dumpty. You're going to become like a beast. And you're going to be scattered out to live like an animal for seven years. I mean, that's the gist of what he says. And I wish, I wish this wasn't your fate. But it's your fate. So, we won't read all the words of that. But look down at verse 17. This is what's going to happen to you. And again, not again, but as they talk about seven periods, it's probably best to take that really as seven years. It doesn't necessarily have to be seven years, but in this chapter it probably means seven years. Because we know that, as we're going to see in just a moment. Verse 27, Daniel says, this is what's going to happen. God's decreed it because... Of what you're doing. So, O king, verse 27, let my counsel be acceptable to you. Break off your sins by practicing righteousness and your iniquities by showing mercy to the oppressed, that there may perhaps be a lengthening of your prosperity. So, all right, just to summarize, king has this big dream. He's a tree, he's providing shade and fruit and comfort for everyone. It is a glorious tree. 
All of a sudden, an angel says, cut down the tree. Cut it down the stump. Hey, but don't, don't get rid of the stump. Put this band of iron around it. Let's, let's protect the stump because it's going to be useful once again. But cut it down. And then it switches to, to kind of this, this picture of this man speaking directly to Nebuchadnezzar. By the way, he's going to be like a beast for seven years. He's going to be out with animals. And he's going to be driven away from man. He's going to fall. And he's going to be made to live like that for this period. Until what? Until this realization comes. That, hey, most high. There is one most high, one holy true God, he rules over all, and I'm not him, and I repent. So verse 28, all of this came upon King Nebuchadnezzar. At the end, notice, notice the duration here. At the end of 12 months, a one whole year. So Daniel says, King, I wish this was for someone else, but it's for you. Repent. And God gives him a whole year. At the end of 12 months, he was walking on the roof of the royal palace of Babylon. The king answered and said, Is this not great Babylon, which I have built by my mighty power as a royal residence and for the glory of my majesty? No repentance. And while the words were still in the king's mouth, there fell a voice from heaven, O king Nebuchadnezzar, to you it is spoken. The kingdom is departed from you. You should be driven from among men. Your dwelling should be with the beasts of the field, you should be made to eat grass like an ox, and seven periods of time shall pass over you until you know that the Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will. Immediately, it happened. He was driven away. He acted like an ox. His hair grew, like it says in verse uh, 33, like eagle's feathers. His nails were like bird's claws. Now, a lot of folks read that and think, that's hogwash. First of all, there's no record in the Babylonian annals that this ever happened to King Nebuchadnezzar. There's records that he served as king. We know when he reigned from and when his reign ended, but there's nothing about him going cuckoo for Cocoa Puffs, so the Bible's false. Well, possibly, but probably not, because in the ancient world, they didn't write down the bad stuff about their kings. You can't find dirt on the ancient kings of the ancient kingdoms. That's just not something they want to, like, brag about. Like, hey, yeah, look at those gardens. And, hey, look at that street. And, yeah, look at Crazy Man. That's our ruler. Uh, that's just not something they boasted about. We don't boast about that stuff either. Other people say, well, how in the world could he keep his kingdom intact when he was insane? There's nothing that says in this text that that's impossible. We know in Rome, the Roman emperor Caligula, he was... Crazy, a lot of Roman emperors were, and they kept their reign. And here's the thing: this doesn't necessarily mean that Nebuchadnezzar like was like thought he was an ox like all the time. Like possibly that's what it means, but it could be that he suffered from this uh, a form of what some have labeled. Um, what's the word here? Anyone got the word? Lycanthropy. That's a big word. Like, yeah, I know, I know. <laughs> Lycanthropy, which is basically the, uh, a form of schizophrenia where someone imagines they're a wolf. This is where they got, that's where the, the ancient legends of werewolves kind of evolved from. It's a very rare thing, but it's a real thing. It's a real medical condition. And when folks have this, it's not like they're all the time like a wolf, but they just have these urges and these tendencies where they, they think they are a wolf. They, they can snarl and like even erratic behavior that is wolf-like and they may have periods of time where they kind of lapse back to sanity but 
they, you know, they won't groom themselves. I mean, they still, it's like they're split. It's like they're schizophrenic. Like, part of me is wolf. I'm like, so maybe he was still able to communicate. We know at some point he came to himself. He came to his senses and repented. And the way the text reads, it's almost like, look at verse 34. At the end of the days, I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted my eyes to heaven and my reason to return to me. Lifted to my eyes to heaven is an expression of repentance. So you had to be sane enough to actually repent. And it's almost, it's almost like here's the sequence. Crazy, I repent, reason comes back. I get a haircut. Right? <laughs> That's what the sequence seems to be like. So it's not Bible folklore to think that this text could very easily have happened. There's no reason not to take this at face value. That's the apologetic plug for tonight. But notice what he says. After verse 34, I, I repented, lift my eyes to heaven. My reason came back. He starts to worship. I praise and bless the most high and praise and honor him who lives forever for his dominion. His, not mine, is an everlasting dominion. His kingdom, not mine, endures for, from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing. He does according to his will among the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. No one, I love this imagery, no one can stay his hand or say to him, what have you done? Kyle mentioned I was with Jeremy Burridge uh, today in Mobile, who was speaking to you guys at Fall Retreat if you're there. And Jeremy and I, whenever we're together, we reminisce about old, old days growing up. And there's a funny story we always share about one, one of his old girlfriends. They're driving in the car, and they're driving. Someone cuts them off. He's driving. And she goes over to, like, honk the horn, and he just hit her hand on the roof and did that. Right. So we always joke about that. I told him I was going to share that story. Um, that's what Nebuchadnezzar says. No one can do that to God. Like, he's going to honk the horn if he wants to honk the horn. No one can restrain his hand. No one can swat it away like you swat a fly. He will do what he wants to do. And no one can question him, hey, what have you done? Oh, my goodness, I'm so sorry. All right, we're, we're going to land the plane here soon. All right, so there's, there's the story. Um, by the way, on your outline there, basically uh, my rough, the way I summarize the book of Daniel, first six chapters, it, it is, I think this is a book about the rule and reign of God. Like God's sovereignty is all over this book. I know Kyle's been talking about that for, since you've been in the book. This is about God reigning. God reigning from heaven, and chapters 1 through 6, I think, primarily show how God reigns from heaven, how his sovereignty extends, is extended on behalf of his people who are currently in exile, in gospel-hostile environments. So how does God's sovereignty protect his people who in, right now, they're in a gospel-hostile environment, and they're in exile, like they're, they're away from their home. They're, they're, they're here, they're transplanted. And their environment is not one that encourages them to do justice, love mercy, and walk humbly with their God. How does God's sovereignty manifest itself for his people then? I think that's chapters 1 through 6. And then I think chapters 7 through 12, how does God's sovereignty work on behalf of that exiled people to finally bring them to a perfect and permanent place? So that's just kind of the summary of the book in my words. All right, so let's go over, let's hit a gospel home run real quick. Truths about God. Um, here, here are the two I want to mention. Uh, first of all, God is the author. That's one truth. And second truth, God is a character. 
God is the author. God is a character. Let me, let me show you what I mean by that. First of all, God's the author. It is obvious from this text of Scripture, from other places in the Bible, that God is absolutely sovereign over every single thing that happens to every single person in every single place along every single point in history. God, there is one God, and he's completely in control and sovereign. I think it was uh, Kyle Bryant who first said, there is no maverick molecule in the universe. And then you coined that? Yeah. It's just, it doesn't exist. David says in Psalm 139 that God has written every one of them the days of our life when as yet there were none of them. Like God's written our days. He's this great author. He's written the story. Like from beginning to end, it's already written. And no one can edit his story and say, you know what? Let's change Calvary to whatever. I like another rescue plan. God's like, no, I've written the story. And really, no one can say, let's change my life. I don't like being born in Tuscaloosa. I want to be born in Timbuktu, which I don't know why you want to do that trade. But God's like, no, I'm going to write you into Tuscaloosa. He's the author. But here's the truth I think that we sometimes miss as well. God's also a character in the story he wrote. Would you ever come across those passages where it says, like, God relented. So, for instance, um, book of Jonah. Hey, Jonah, go to Nineveh and tell them in 40 days it's coming down. And Jonah, first time he doesn't, strike one. Hey, he doesn't get strike two. He goes the second time, and that's what he says. Hey, Ninevites, it's coming down 40 days. And what happens? Anyone, what happens? They repented, and then what happens? It came down, right? No, it didn't. didn't. But God said it was going to. It says God relented. He changed his mind from the disaster he had planned to do, and he did not do it. He changed his mind. Why? Because God changes? No. Because God is not only the author of this entire story, he's also a character who enters the story with us and really interacts with us as a real person. And so our decisions and our actions really matter. And God interacts with that, and he responds and gets angry and relents and judges. If you want kind of the textbook chapter on this, it's Jeremiah 18. And there God lays out both for nations and individuals. He says, hey, if there's a wicked nation and they repent, I'm going to relent. And if there's a nation walking in righteousness, but later they turn into wickedness, I'm going to turn and judge. And so God is author and God is character as well. I'm sorry, we're already over. Let me just go through these real quick. Man. Two things about man. Number one, man is depraved. And number two, man is dependent. Number one, man is depraved. He's not like God. Number two, man is dependent. He's not God. So Nebuchadnezzar is simply living out the expression of 1 John 2, 15, where John says, love not the world, either the things that are in the world, for all that's in the world, the lust of the flesh, those things which we naturally, wrongfully desire, the lust of the eyes, those things that we, uh, the lust of the flesh, those things that physically we desire in an unnatural way, lust of the eyes, those things kind of aesthetically we desire in an unnatural way, either status or image or whatnot, and the pride of possessions. These things are not of the Father, but of the world. 
And that's what Nebuchadnezzar, when he is gloating on his palace, he is simply living out the natural outworking of his own depravity. Like, it's not unique. The only thing unique about Nebuchadnezzar is that he rules over the known world, and we never get that chance, probably. Maybe a couple of you might have that chance someday. And so if you do, and the Spirit of Christ is not in you, you'll do the same thing, and I will too. I will say, isn't this what I built? Remember a few years ago, President Obama like, got in trouble for saying that? Like, you didn't build that. You remember that? I don't think it was that long ago. I mean, come on. Don't you all read the newspaper? No, I'm kidding, I'm kidding. He got in this big trouble because he was telling him some business folks, like, you didn't build that. You have folks who helped you, and you're dependent upon, you're standing on the shoulders of the folks who went before you. And he was right, really. He built that. Remember 1 Corinthians, I guess chapter 4, what do you have that you did not receive? If then you did receive it, why do you boast as if you did not receive it? Well, because we're depraved, that's why. And man on his own is depraved. That's going to be the natural outworking of depravity. We're going to be boastful about the things we do have, and we're going to wrongfully desire the things we don't have, whether they're physical or whether they're intellectual or aesthetic. Number three, Christ. Two things about Christ. First of all, his mission is unlike this world. His mission is unlike this world. Number two, his mission is unstoppable by this world. So his mission is unlike this world. And number two, his mission is unstoppable by this world. His mission is unlike this world. And I know you may say, well, you're kind of stretching here. But Christ is kind of like the foil here to Nebuchadnezzar. Nebuchadnezzar, this pagan king who gloats in the things he has acquired, Jesus Christ, the true king, glories in those things he did not count as equality with God, something to be held on to, but the one who did what? He, Philippians 2, emptied himself, right? And became a servant. And so his mission is definitely antithetical to the world, and intentionally so. It's through his upside-down, reverse mission that he plans to make all wrongs right. He plans to undo what has been done through that kind of mission. It's not the natural way of ruling. It's definitely not like Nebuchadnezzar. Secondly, his mission is unstoppable by this world. When Nebuchadnezzar says, no one can restrain his hand or say to him, what have you done? He is talking obviously about God, but how has God fully and finally revealed himself in his son, Jesus Christ? Revelation 11, now the kingdoms of this world have become the kingdoms of our Lord and of his Christ, and he will reign forever and ever. Jesus Christ is the king, and his mission is unstoppable. All right, and then fourth response, we must enter the kingdom via repentance or through the door of repentance. And then secondly, we're called to enjoy the kingdom and again, you might say, ah, I think you're stretching on this one, but I'm, I'm leaving the softballs for you guys. But enjoy the kingdom. Enter the kingdom through repentance. We see that as that's how God, that's what God did to Nebuchadnezzar in this chapter. And actually, you think about seven years with this kind of psychopathic malady that one deals with. And when you take a step back, you think, was that judgment or was that mercy? I probably had to say, I think it was both. It tends to be how God works in life. God, in his judgment, 
Every single judgment of God is for us an invitation to repent. Every single malady or catastrophe is for us an invitation to draw closer to him, to enter the kingdom. So we enter the kingdom. He's drawn us to repentance, through repentance, and we enjoy the kingdom by resting in his sovereignty. And so I'll close with this and let y'all discuss for just a little bit. I can think of no greater truth that will bring us, in no matter what walk of life the Lord um, lays out for us, there is no greater truth that we can kind of uh, harvest more joy from than the joy of knowing that God is absolutely sovereign over all things. I remember when I memorized, I memorized uh, Daniel chapter 4, verse 34, as a recent college graduate, I did this thing called the Journeyman Program with the International Mission Board. So two years, I was a missionary in Zambia, sub-Sahara, African nation of Zambia. And I remember I went to work with a people called the Bimba people. And so to work with these people, uh, you needed to learn their language. Kind of makes sense, right? Uh, Which I was like, I know English, and they speak English. And I, nah, you need to learn something else because they didn't speak a lot. So anyways, I went out for about three months into this um, Bush language, um, like, boot camp. Like, this institute, it was run by these, uh, run by these two priests called White Fathers. There's, a, there's actually an order of Catholic priests called White Fathers, and they're missionaries to Africa, and uh, they're typically white. And so uh, there was these old, was, one was like 75 and one was like 82. The 82-year-old was a um, French-Canadian named Luke. The 75-year-old was a German named Rolf. And so their English is kind of broken, and they had been in Zambia longer than they, I had been alive. And so I had three meals a day with these guys, and they would sit down, and every time at the, at the table, it would be it so hard communicating because I would be speaking, like, southern Alabama English, and they're speaking a mixture of English, Deutsch, French, Bimba, all this kind of mixture. And so it's just kind of like this hodgepodge of language made uh, dinner time interesting. I remember one time they weren't there, this is kind of a side note. And uh, I know I'm way beyond time to do side notes, but they weren't there. And so I'm just kind of eating by myself at breakfast. Actually, it was like dinner. The next morning, I'm like, hey, I missed you guys. You know, where were you at? And they're like, oh, sorry, we were uh, in the cemetery praying for the dead. I was like, gonna pass the eggs? Here we go. All right, thanks. <laughs> We kind of had like this unspoken rule, like this is don't talk theology, let's talk about other things. So uh, anyways, so I was there for about three months, and about six weeks into it, like I, I am six hours a day with my tutor named Rose, and she is teaching me Chibimba, and I'm trying to learn, and I'm not learning, and I'm supposed to go out in the afternoons and practice what I learn. And so it's about six weeks into it. And I'm done with the classroom work for that day. And those of you who have learned, studied other languages, you could probably identify with this. Like, I'm just so frustrated. I just want to give up. So I'm walking down this village path. I'm kicking dirt around. I'm like, man, I hope no one comes to talk to me. I don't want to talk to anybody. And so as I'm kicking dust and thinking, God, like, I stink. What's going on? I start kind of having a pity party. And I, I literally say out loud, like I'm thinking, I'm having this argument with God. What have you done? I'm some kind of Alabama hick boy. You've sent me over here in the bush of Africa. What am I doing over here? Like I could be doing like all this cool stuff. And I say literally out loud, I say, God, what have you done? Like almost out loud. And as soon as I said that, as Brother Key says, I ain't preaching. I'm telling the truth. As soon as I said that, I hear a voice say, ah, excuse me. I look back. He says, 
are you David the Baptist? And he was talking in English. I was thankful. I'm like, I guess so. I guess so. And he said, uh, I'm not going to do his voice again. He said, I teach at a Catholic school, and I and a few of my colleagues, we've just recently come to know the truth of the gospel. That area was heavily Catholic, and it was a very, very strong works-based salvation um, teaching. And so he said, we've, we've come to know the gospel. We want to know, will you come to my house every Tuesday or Thursday and teach us the Bible? I said, in English? He said, yes. I said, I'm there. Yeah. And so I went back to my little room there at that institute, and I just fell on my knees and memorized this verse. All the inhabitants of the earth are reputed as nothing in his sight. He does according to his will amongst the armies of the heaven and amongst the inhabitants of the earth. No one can restrain his hand or say to him, what have you done? What are you doing? And I hope you have moments like this. It was one of the most broken and sweetest moments of my life. As doctrine known theoretically became doctrine known experientially. And the sovereign God of Daniel 4 drew me in closer to himself. There's no greater joy, I think. There's no greater truth where we can find as much joy.